the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics. We are the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everybody in between. It's been a good week here in the UK. The sun is coming out. Everybody's getting their jabs. It feels like we're going to be free soon, which yeah. is always a good thing. And me and you sat down together and had a pub lunch. Oh my god! Outside, I'd forgotten. That was so nice. It was so nice. I'd forgotten you had legs, and you do have legs. <laughs> yeah. I saw them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, they were I've... behind trousers, so they might be cybernetic. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the first time I'd worn jeans in a while. Oh, I know. <laughs> well. Uh, up until earlier, when I had to go out, I, I went out with my partner for lunch. I I was wearing pajamas, which I had been wearing for about thirty six hours solid, which I'm not proud of, but it's just one of those things. But I yeah, thought you, I thought you were going to say thirty six days. <laughs> oh no, no, God, no, no, no. Um, well, so this week I. I guess it's a bit inspired by an episode we did a few weeks ago on number stations. So number stations, uh, Ben will correct me if I'm wrong, but they're kind of bizarre and mysterious terrestrial radio signals, potentially used as spy communication or dead hand signals. You know, if if the signal stops, then Russia bombs America or vice versa, which terrifies me, I must say. I I do wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat about that, going, is it still on? Is it still on? Um. No, you're you're, you're right. I mean, but the nature of them is, yeah, they're mysterious. So they they could literally be a big practical joke. We don't know. We don't know. But it did, we did mention it on that podcast and it has inspired me to to spread my wings further afield and think about extraterrestrial audio or interstellar signals. Um, so I thought we'd cover that today. So we've got, we've got a, a range of stuff, but I'd like to start potentially with the start of everything. So... Ben, can you cast your mind back about 14 billion years to the Big Bang? Oh, yes, I remember. Um, <laughs> I remember it well. It was the primary school, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, Mrs. Everson, Times Tables. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 obviously, going back that far, I would guess, I would guess, are we going to be talking... Like the white snow that you get on televisions. Is that an echo of the Big Bang? Well, it's interesting you say that because there there does seem to be some debate about whether that is the echo of a Big Bang. I think it's partially, partially within that signal is an echo for the Big Bang. But I think it might be a bit of an urban myth that Ah, that is the Big Bang. Interesting. But I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to move forward Uh, and talk about the Planck Space Observatory, which in lots of ways changed our view of the universe. So the Planck Observatory was operated by the European Space Agency from 2009 to 2013. It mapped cosmic microwave backgrounds, CMBs, as they're called. There's a lot of three-letter acronyms coming up in this episode. I'm not going to get too geeky uh, about the whole thing. One, because we've got a lot to cover. 
And two, uh, I am a bear with little brain, so I'm not sure I can do the science of it complete justice. But from my understanding, key findings from the Planck Observatory were that the universe has more matter and expanded more slowly than we previously thought, which is interesting. This Mm. one blew my mind. The universe is really, as the article I read, is really, really flat in terms of its overall spatial curvature. The data indicated that the universe is indistinguishable from perfectly flat, which made me think flat earthers have backed the wrong horse. Right, so so you mean it's, it's if you're looking at it, it's like a disc? Yeah, seems to be the implication. Right, so it's flying out side sideways but not um so it's east so it's east and west but not north and south well it's a good question and i must have been even reading the articles i couldn't quite get my head around it so if there is anyone out there who can put light on this that would be fantastic because i i like you kind of imagine that everything goes every direction infinite yes it's a you know, ball not, rather than a disc yeah yeah but apparently not, according to the Planck Observatory. Okay, that's fascinating because I suppose, like, when you look up at the stars at night and you look through the Milky Way, I'm very aware that we're looking sort of from the edge of a spiral arm through the Milky Way, but I hadn't thought that that was just, like, that is obviously part of a disc, but I thought that if you looked 45 degrees to the other side of it, you'd be looking up through the ball of it, if that makes any sense, if you saw what I mean. Yeah, and we might be talking complete rubbish because I I am no Dr. Brian Cox, but I I got that impression that in some ways the the universe is is more like a record, like a vinyl record. Do you know what I mean? It's like that and there, there are grooves and dips in it, but it is essentially flat. Right. I get you. Well, we need to go to Richer Sounds and get a heck of a turntable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one that plays stereo, not just mono. Yeah. Um, the Planck Observatory also uh, changed the thinking of the makeup of the universe, so how much of it is dark matter and all the various components. But the bit I've picked, because we are talking about interstellar audio was that the observatory gave us a better understanding of the Big Bang, which inspired a man called John Kramer, who's Professor Emeritus of Physics at the University of Washington, to revise his thoughts on what the Big Bang sounded like. So he released his original interpretation of how the Big Bang sounded in 2003, based on all the data that he had at the time. But after analysing data from the Planck Observatory, he did a remix, which I just love. So Kramer said the new frequency spectrum goes to much higher frequencies uh, than did previous analysis and therefore offers a more high fidelity rendition of the sound of the Big Bang. Do you want to have a listen? Of course I want to listen. Right, have a listen to this.
Okay, Ben, I, I know it's no Andy Weatherall remix, but that is what the first 400,000 years, roughly, because of the amount I played of the universe sounds like. So the first 400,000 years after the Big Bang, which, A, I love the fact that's what it sounds like, and B, I love the fact that he did a remix. It It is remarkable, and it's remarkable that you get a sound out of it that sort of feels like <laughs> it's almost danceable. It, uh, but more than that, it's intelligible. It isn't just... It doesn't sound like a fax machine. It sounds like something that you might listen to, which is weird because we like, I didn't know you were going to play that, but like we were just talking about if the universe was a giant record that you could stick on a record player. So there is, there's something interesting there. I mean, it's, it's very experimental ambient, but arguably it was the original ambient record, right? Yes, yeah. Or, or record or sound. It's, well, it's the first, if, if we believe the theory, it was the first sound that was ever created, which I just think is incredible. And the fact the guy remixed it, went through like all the hundreds of bits of data and kind of did a remix of his original thoughts of what it sounded like, I think is brilliant. I think it's brilliant. And it's almost like you can imagine like the earliest parts of the universe's structure, that was the soundtrack to them yeah yeah but maybe the thing that i would have a question about and perhaps he would have an answer to is about the tempo of it because um there's a definite speed to it and one has to ask you know is that just set for like human ears is it supposed to be that fast or is it yeah. supposed to be much faster or much slower but yeah, I it, mean, probably... it does slow I... Yeah, it, it is that wine that just slows, but I think that's the fact. As as it's, as the time goes on and it kind of the universe stops expanding or slows its rate of expansion, that's I think that's the difference in its in sound. No, I but, but yeah, I really like it. There's there's a there's an inherent beauty in that being so natural. It sort of has that sort of um, like when you know where it comes from you could imagine playing that next to a video of seeing a live feed of earth from the space station or something like that it's kind of yeah 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 yeah. i I suppose it's very visceral is is what i'm getting at yeah well so that that's that's what the start of the universe sounded like let's uh let's go a bit closer to home I want to move on to audio that we have deliberately sent into space uh, and talk about IRMs, interstellar radio messages. So let's start with the first radio signal that was intended for an extraterrestrial audience. It's called the Morse message. Uh, It was sent in 1962. It was sent by the USSR. It consisted of three Russian words in Morse code. Those words were, one, peace, number two, Lenin, and three, CCCP, or USSR, if you want to translate it. So they sent a Morse code message in 1962 with, uh, in Morse code, peace, Lenin, and CCCP. 
And they sent the message to Venus, interestingly. Now, one might argue it obviously was all to do with the race for space between the Russians and the Americans and a bit of a stunt by the Russians. But I don't know, what I find incredibly intriguing in the, is there is an implication in sending the message that they believe there might be life on Venus and not just life, but an intelligent civilization. That was mm. in 1962. That's incredible to me. Yeah. I mean, well within living memory. I mean, yeah. absolutely within living memory. But also, it's weird, isn't it? Like, um, there's a there's an ideological reason for sending two out of those three words. It's like if North Korea yeah, yeah, were exactly. sending that stuff up, they'd probably just go, Kim Il-un, like, what a lovely fat man. And it yeah. would be, like, they would perceive that to be completely legitimate whereas um things that you get from less idealistic western nations are tend to be cultural things which try to break through p- uh, sort of the difference I, I mean i'm saying this out loud and it sounds ridiculous but the difference between uh, a human entity and another worldly entity like it is quite weird to send the word lenin like that's going to mean anything even to a venusian let alone somebody further away (laughs) from space i mean like the lenin they're just going to be thinking what john lenin the 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 musician we've heard so much of i i just have this vision that you know we often say what was the meeting like Mm. you could just hear him saying we pick the three words what we've got is Hello, peace, and Russia. And yeah. then someone's gone, whoa, hold on a second. What about Lenin? Oh, God, we're going to have to lose one. <laughs> we can't lose <laughs> Russia. <laughs> but yeah. but that, that's, the, that's the really weird thing, like, because, um, and you may be getting onto this later, but you'd want to communicate something which meant something about life on earth so whether that was a simple mathematical yeah. uh thing or something that tried to describe like there are two sexes on earth and yeah yeah it, you know maybe something about the dominant species or maybe even something about animals versus uh vegetation you know, plant life, maybe something like that. But to just go yeah. Lenin, and then they're going, <laughs> oh, yeah, so, someone in Venus is going to go, oh, yeah, okay, this is from uh, those yeah. Lenin guys. Oh, yeah, we love yeah. Lenin. Like, it's just that's nuts. That's like us getting something. It's like peace, Zorg, yeah. and Bidaba. Yeah. Zorg? Zorg? Who's Zorg? And they're like, oh, did you not know who Zorg is? He's like the main dude on our planet. Oh, well, it's, if we were if we were doing it, we'd have to just go the quantum mechanics, and then it'd be all over. We would we'd run out of words. Oh, that's really interesting. If we were doing it, I would. Oh, I don't know if I would send words. No, I was going to say before you go down that road, that segues nicely into my next message that we sent into. into oh, okay, space. okay. Well, I'll I'll sit by do, do that do that. Yeah, but no, you're you're on the right thread. So I guess. It's one of the most important. Uh, It was sent in 1974. It's known as the Arecibo message. 
It is a collection of data that was sent to the constellation of Hercules. It is set to arrive in the year 25,974. So we shouldn't hold our breath. Well, I was going to say, it's the same time as uh, my yodel parcel. So that's (laughs) ideal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like using second class mail. Uh, the message was broadcast into space in a single time, uh, one single time, via a frequency modulated radio waves. And it was sent at a ceremony to mark the remodeling of the Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico on the 16th of November 1974. Now, interestingly, the message was designed. Not by a communist committee, but it was designed by a guy called Frank Drake, who famously created the Drake equation, which Mm. can be used to estimate the number of active extraterrestrial civilizations in our galaxy. I was going to run through the equation, but yeah, it's like something uh, out of goodwill hunting. So I'm not going to go there. But I do know something about this because... I had to write an essay about this at university. And, oh, perfect. Uh, and the output is is enormous, right? Because it, it, it goes through like very conservative estimates for um, the number of populated planets and the number of... Like before that, you, you start estimating the number of planets that could sustain life. And then it's a very... It assumes a very tiny subset of those planets actually have life. And you come out at the end, and it's it's like billions. Yeah, well, according to my research, and the range is just huge. So it's a range, so the conservative range of... So this is just in our galaxy, so in the Milky Way. They estimate, depending on how you run the numbers, somewhere between 1,000 to 100 million alien intelligent civilizations in the galaxy Mm, i mean that's a big it's a big fluctuation between a thousand to a hundred million but i guess it's (laughs) it's a difficult thing to predict right right because it's all a guess but at its smallest and most pessimistic even a thousand is that's a nuts number that's a that's an i mean that's crazy like if somebody was to tell you tomorrow Oh yeah. Uh, by the way, here are a thousand inhabited planets. It would blow your mind. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I think it's it, it's the most staggering equation, and it isn't made up by people who like are trying to push some sort of peculiar agenda. It's it's created by somebody who was a mathematical thinker who was just trying to come up with a reasonable yeah. estimate for what we might find out there in the universe. Well, I, he seems like the man for the job for the Arecibo message. So basically, there must have been a committee that said, do we get those Russian guys <laughs> who did the uh, the Lenin piece <laughs> and CCCP, or do we get the guy who did the Drake equation to work on this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they went for Drake. The message was also developed with the help of legendary Carl Sagan uh, and, and many others. So you talked about what you would put 
in a message or you were thinking about what you would put in a message that you were sending out. Mm. I'll, I'll list through what they put in the Arecibo message. They put the numbers 1 to 10. Okay. Atomic number. Can well, I just ask, did they do that using binary code or was it just Binary like, code. Oh, right, binary okay. Code. Okay, so, yeah, makes sense. Atomic numbers for the key elements like hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, there's many of them, but I don't, I don't think they covered all of them, but key elements, so atomic numbers. Details of uh, how, hum- how human DNA is formed and the code for human DNA or codes relating to human DNA. The dimension for a human being. Now, I think the way the code work, it could give you a, a graphical representation in a binary way, a simple way of what a human would look like. Uh, it's a good job they didn't our... do that after lockdown, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. My, my code... They need a few zeros and ones. Oh, Jesus Christ, yes. <laughs> Mainly ones. Yeah. Um, the dimension, so the uh, graphics of our solar system... And I thought this was a really sweet touch, uh, a graphic of the Arecibo radio telescope that sent the signal, which I thought was quite nice. And and that is also, that's in binary format again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's kind of like a represent, if you've cracked the code, so if you, so binary pretty much works for us as humans because we've got 10 fingers, 10 toes, so we understand the yeah. rule of 10 um which is obviously a evolutionary fluke so you have to imagine that the people we're sending this to or the creatures we're sending this to like if they do have fingers it's unlikely it would be a real strange fluke if it was 10 but it's a code that's crackable yeah and once you realize it's based on a base 10 you can decode the whole signal yeah exactly right. okay so, yeah, I think they put a bit more effort in than the first Russian message. Myself. Yeah, they didn't say Lenin. No. I'm, and I'm, I'm slightly aside this, and I'm, I'm going to play you another clip in a second just because I love it. Uh, so earlier we heard the inter- interpretation of the sound of the Big Bang. So that was quite kind of, kind of mm. simple. Mm. So the zeros and ones of the uh, Arecibo message were put into sound by someone called Professor Erhard Berens from Freie University in Berlin. I'm not going to play the whole thing because it goes on for about five, six minutes. I'm just going to play a snippet of it. So he's basically taken the code and put it into some kind of musical form. And I'm just going to play a bit because I just think it's really cool. Mm. Have, a, have a listen to this. cool isn't it ben i just love that i i know there's a lot to talk about the arecibo message but i just love the fact that somebody's taking the time to take that code and turn it into something beautiful like that it's amazing yes to me back to my rave days yes yes absolutely and it's a 
It's sort of it's that thing where um, the science meets art, and I think it just proves that always, like mathematics uh, has been described by prominent mathemat- mathematicians as being artistic, and perhaps this is a version of that artistry that those of us who don't really understand mathematics can appreciate because that is, I guess, a mathematical signal turned into notes and it it is beautiful it is genuinely beautiful yes yeah i mean the other thing that's worth saying about the arecibo message is uh we have talked about it before right when we talked about crop circles yes yes because there was a reply yes so uh depending on your point of view there was a reply that was uh put into a crop circle uh, and I can't remember the exact details of what it looked like, but it was they it gave details of things like silicone. Uh, so it was all it was a response, wasn't it, to those key elements that I've just talked about? Yes, it was, and it also contained, like I suppose, what you would say, uh, imagery that is um, is unusual. Uh, and and also contained binary code. Yeah, and the alien face is very in a similar style, I think, to uh, the the dish that was in the original message that where it was broadcast from. It was a response to that of what they look like as well. So it was it was a kind of typical alien looking. So if, if it was some kind of hoax or artistic human interpretation it was a very good one and very accurate right yes yes well i think probably the key thing to take away from it is that it was the reply was in the same format as the message that was sent out and and so if it is a like we were saying in the crop circles thing if it is a doug and dave um like human recreation and we you know to be clear, I'm not saying it isn't, but you do require a certain level of understanding of, well, mathematics and science. Whereas, I don't know, it's, it is a particularly unusual thing to get, I think. It's a phenomenon, yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting we were talking earlier about the universe uh, being a bit like a record because... That what we just talked about is sending a digital message into space, a radio wave. But we have sent records into space. Famously, on Voyager, uh, the Voyager probe, there are two golden records on board. Mm-hmm. So the probe was sent in 1977. There are two gold discs on it containing 115 images from Earth. Natural sounds like rain, thunder, animal sounds, spoken greetings in multiple languages, past and present. The discs have 90 minutes of music on them, including Mozart, Louis Armstrong, music from all over the world, basically. I I just, I I could go through the list, but if you just think of Peter Gabriel's record collection, you've got the idea of what it's going to be like, right? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, Any two unlimited? 
No two unlimited, unfortunately. Oh, no, hasn't hasn't got hasn't got snap. You got the power on there, but um, it's got blind Willie Johnson, which is good enough for me. So Lord, that's that is to be fair, that is amazing. Like when you talk about those um, those boardroom meetings, that was a pretty great boardroom meeting to go. Like these people, like we can understand then and now that these people shaped popular culture in yeah. all sorts of different ways and they shaped it so much that their artwork was sent to space like yeah, if i was one of those guys i would be like imagine that being phoned up and told your work yeah. is going into space i mean good god that would be the most amazing moment of your life I just have this horrible feeling, though, that there'll be some interstellar being that's just using it as a chopping board or something. (laughs) 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 Melting it down and using it as a ring. Yeah, yeah, these are nice earrings. God, well, yeah. and obviously Voyager, along with these golden records, recently left our solar system. So they're now in interstellar space, which I just think that there's something, you know, as as a music fan and a fan of vinyl, just the idea that there are these discs out there, which, you know, at some point could end up with an alien civilization listening to Louis Armstrong or Mozart or whatever. I just, that's just really inspirational to me it is it is and also i think like as a contrast the arecibo message which is um like by its very nature a digital message this is an analog one and so we're sort of covering our bases and like there is something like you can imagine like it's it's still floating through space now and it's many millions if not billions of years away uh, uh miles away sorry but in the future perhaps when earth is long gone because it might take that long for it to find one of these civilizations they get it and they work out how this record works and yeah it in all those billions of years away there's a program like blue peter where they put it on on live television around their planet and there is this jazz music playing out from a planet which has long since deceased. I think it's amazing. <laughs> Although they, I had, did have this other... They, they, they may just stick it on the extraterrestrial version of eBay. That's the, that's the downside, right? Oh, yeah. No, that, that is true. That is true. Oh, God, and it would fetch a large sum like yeah as an aside like um i've got quite into ebay recently and um well i know we share a love of the klf there are some original album presses like uh, metallic album presses that made some of the early klf records which are going for like a thousand or more pounds and okay the the joy of getting one of those would be immense but there's nothing i could do with it i just have to put it in my cellar but like maybe that is the same with an alien race maybe 
There is like yeah. a Richard Branson of one of these alien races who manages to retrieve one of these things. And he's like, well, yeah, you know, I'll play it to you on the radio, but I'm putting that in my cellar. And they have yeah. like, it's very strange to comprehend like what they, what an alien race would think to those things because to the, to us, they mean so much, but to them, it would just be a noise. They don't understand English. Yeah. They yeah, may yeah, not yeah. even have music in the same way. Music to them, you know, may be something completely different or because they haven't evolved in the same way as us, maybe music doesn't exist. So it's this weird yeah. noise. And it, it's obvious that it comes from an intelligent species, but an intelligent species, you know, that is three, four, five, ten million or billion years old and long gone. Uh, the sun has gone, you know, giant and has swallowed the earth. We're no longer here and there's this thing surviving in the basement of, like, an alien radio millionaire DJ. I think that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Well, I, I think with those lovely images and, you know, the... I think both the Golden Discs and the Arecibo message, there's something amazing about it. But we've sent these messages and this information into space to communicate with these alien civilizations, but it does raise a bit of an ethical question, and that is, should we have sent them? Mm. And it, I think it's interesting looking at, you know, what Drake and Carl Sagan did with those the Arecibo and the gold discs and it's almost this scientific view of aliens and if you compare that to movies view of aliens I mean they're they're poles apart aren't they it's almost this kind of scientific view of you know almost Star Trekian in a way that there's this fantastic advanced civilization that are going to come and be peaceful and hold our hands. And then you've got the movie side of it, which is, yeah, uh, Independence Day, I guess. <laughs> you know, there's those two differences. So so we have sent these messages to extraterrestrials on a number of occasions, though admittedly it's kind of almost impossible that any alien civilization has received our messages yet. But should we have as a debate that has really captured some very prominent names. And it reminded me of a book, I don't know if you've read, uh, Ben, by a guy called Brian Walsh. He explores many themes in his books, but including this theme of should we have sent stuff and invite aliens around. The, the book, we'll put links to it in our photo album, as we always do. The book's called End Times, A Brief Guide to the End of the World. It's by Brian Walsh. It does cover everything from, you know, nuclear war to an asteroid hitting us. But on this subject, uh, I'll just quote him. He says, If extraterrestrial civilization have rates of development anything like human beings, meaning rapid technological growth following industrialization, a head start of just a century could be enough to create a massive military gap akin to the difference between a World War I-era army and a modern US military. Yeah. And actually, that, that is only... And he's right, that's, that's a gap of 100 years. If you imagine military today to what they had in World War I, 100 or so years, 
well, these civilizations could be thousands of years advanced to us. Oh, well. Which I, you know. Or, or, or indeed millions or perhaps billions. What is interesting is that we're assuming that any alien race is still in the uh, the sort of um, still in the same mindset as humans are. I I would imagine that a an alien race which has managed to find its way throughout the stars has gone way past territorial disputes and. Mm things like that like the only reason that anybody would come and exterminate people on earth is because a it wanted the resources from earth and there was no other way of doing it or it just you know it was like something um you know it was a sci-fi thing like predator and just had a uh, bloodlust but if you yeah. think about like when we and now, as a as a race, we're developing uh, like m- morals and empathy towards uh, creatures. You think like the amount of money that goes into, for example, saving elephants. Mm. Like when that the, you, you walk down the high street now, <clears throat> and if you said to to most people, "Do you want to give ten pounds to save an elephant?" Most people would. And the thought of killing an elephant is abhorrent to most most people, and yeah. like if you accelerate that by a thousand years, the idea of killing an elephant will be ridiculous. And and at the same time, we're developing like lab grown meat and things yeah. like that, so we don't have to kill animals. So it feels like we're on a trajectory where we are not going to be those you know, this warmongering ape species that we are. So it feels like, yes, though it is a great risk, anybody that is coming to us from another planet is going to treat us like those elephants. Well, it's interesting you say that, because the next quote I've got is from Stephen Hawking. Okay. And Especially the last bit of this quote I want you to listen to, because it might change your view of what you just said. He says, or said, meeting a more advanced civilization at our present stage might be a bit like the original inhabitants of America meeting Columbus, and I don't think they thought they were better off for it. Hawking, this is the bit I think is interesting. Hawking also was concerned about how advanced an alien civilization might view us. They will be vastly more powerful and may not see us as any more valuable than we see bacteria. Which made me think, after all what you've said, I'm with you with the elephants and all that stuff. But, you know, we as a planet are trying to destroy COVID-19. Mm. Right? Mm. Yeah. Understandably, nobody would argue with that. So our perception of that is it has to be destroyed at all costs. Yes, Um but I suppose the argument there would be that, um, well, two things. COVID-19 is a virus and it's debatable whether viruses are alive or not. Like, I think most scientists... But, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah they're, yeah, they're not. But also, um, they are, like, it is a, it's a thing which will kill 
our species unless we kill it. And so when we get this alien race, it depends on, yes, they might be massively more advanced than us, or they may look at us. And in my mind, if we were that behind them in evolution, maybe we're more like, for example, goldfish. And like we're obviously massively influential in the ecosystem in which we live as is the goldfish in my fish tank but i spend well literally hundreds of pounds keeping my goldfish alive because that is my responsibility and i would feel like this alien race would think well you know this is something that we it's almost like the prime directive from um Mm, star trek they come here they look at it and they go well you know, we, without hesitation, we can take any of the resources we need without har- harming or hurting yeah. anybody. So that's fine. But on the other side of it is like, would you, would you come here as this um, advanced set of beings, and like, you know, what are the chances that they need to destroy us? Even like, yeah. It, I, it but just doesn't I, I make think, any sense. But I think the bacteria point just got me thinking about. I'm with you, and I, I, I'm with you. But I mean, you've said already we do still most a lot of the population, probably most of the population, still eats meat. Yeah, which we don't need to, arguably. Um, yeah, including myself. Um, I'm with you with, you know, preserving life, but I wouldn't go so far as to try and avoid treading on ants while I'm walking down the street. Mm. I don't I wouldn't pay that second thought. So mm. what I took from Stephen Hawking's point is it may not even be that conscious a decision. They just mm. don't we are an ant to them. And of course they're not gonna go out their way to harm it, but you know, like me walking down the street, I'm I don't spend my life looking at the ground trying to avoid treading on one. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a really interesting about I thought what was quite interesting as well that even Carl Sagan, who was involved in the Arecibo message and putting together the golden records on Voyager, he had concerns about shouting into the cosmos, which Sagan said might be deeply unwise and immature, the act of a toddler calling attention to themselves. You know, I mean, he was involved in this. I don't think he was coming down necessarily big anti against it, but I think there was a bit in his mind that goes, yeah, we did this thing, but should we have? Mm. Should we have drawn attention to ourselves? Which I think is really interesting. Mm. Yeah, no, that it does make sense, but I suppose it also, like again, I would argue that those um, those points of view are perhaps forgetting that there is maybe quite a lot around existence and consciousness that we don't understand. So, yeah. if these other beings are so advanced that they understand you know, what consciousness is, what life is, it's likely they will have a very different viewpoint to us about it. Like, it seems hard for me, it seems hard to anybody to uh, to sort of argue that 
um, they would just be like another apex predator that built some ships that can trans, you know, go through space, which is kind of what we are at the moment. We're, we're literally just apex predators that got lucky. These yeah. beings would, it feels like they would have a greater understanding of what existence actually means and therefore might have a view on like how you would treat other consciousnesses perhaps yeah i don't know yeah yeah well that's kind of the summary of the stuff that we've done to try and communicate with alien civilizations but it does make you think that if we're doing it could aliens be doing the same thing sending out messages and in my research about it it seems to me that interpreting signals from outer space bed is a really tricky and complicated business <laughs> as if um, yeah yeah you'd think wouldn't you so you know until the late 60s for for example many signals that were thought to come from alien civilizations were discovered to be coming from pulsars and not little green men. But at the time, they were interpreted as, well, these must be messages from alien civilizations. I, I won't go into the details of this story, but fast radio bursts as well. I mean, you may remember this. There was a story probably a couple of years ago that they'd found some signals and there was talk of it was an alien civilization using these bursts to push solar sails that were spacecraft. Yeah. You know, and it, yeah, you remember that story, and everybody got really excited about it. And since then, these fast radio bursts, it seems more likely that they're actually to do with big black holes. Big black holes? <laughs> it seems more likely they're actually to do with black holes. Uh, which is interesting in itself, because I think researching into this area... It, it's helping scientists understand how matter when it travels into a black hole works but again my point is originally and this wasn't that long ago they were misidentified as some kind of evidence of an alien civilization mm, yeah signals yeah. yeah which leads me on to the big one the wow moment literally in interstellar audio so the wow signal, as it's known, mm. uh, it's believed that this signal, spotted by Ohio State University in 1977, is the closest we have ever come to proof of alien intelligent life. And interestingly, there was an update to this story towards the end of last year. So I'm going to quote from an article in Astronomy Magazine by Eric Burtz, I've kind of taken bits of it but it's a really good article we'll put a link to the whole article it's from september 2020 <clears throat> and to give you some background so on august the 15th 1977 the big ear radio telescope in delaware ohio received the most powerful signal it would ever detect during its decades of observation the signal lasted just 72 seconds but when an astronomer spotted it on a computer printout days later, he was so impressed that he quickly scrawled WOW! exclamation mark in red pen across the page. The data looked much like what SETI astronomers expected to see from alien intelligence. 
However, despite many attempts to follow up on the finding, the so-called wow signal has never reappeared. Few moments in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence have captivated the public imagination quite like the wow signal. To some, it's the most promising potential detection of alien life ever, but others see it as a triumph over publicity over science. So, was the signal E.T. or was it not E.T.? Nobody knows for sure, but Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at SETI Institute, told Astronomy magazine, nobody has ever found another explanation for what that might have been. It's like you hear chains rattling in your attic and you think, my God, ghosts are real, but then you never hear them again. So what do you think? Which I thought was really interesting. It kind of worked well for our podcast, really. That this is a thing, great quote, yeah. It's great, isn't it, that they saw this thing, it's never been repeated, but it just left them going, what the hell? Um, so most I've, of- I've heard so many explanations for it, but none of them, nobody's <laughs> ever put any weight behind them. Everything from no. washing machines to satellites. But No, yeah. no. Um, Shosak says that if the signal wouldn't have had... He is sceptical about it, the, the SETI guy. He said if it hadn't have had the words wow written across it, no one would probably have ever heard of it. One of signals like this were common back in the early days of SETI, when observatory computers were true primitive, primitive to notify astronomers of discoveries in real time or provide uh, rapid-fire follow-ups. But that hasn't stopped astronomers repeatedly returning to the patch of sky searching for a return of the wow signal. So let's talk a little bit more about the discovery. So late in the summer of 1977, a guy called Jerry Amon sat down to review the latest batch of computer printouts detailing data collected by the Big Ear Radio Observatory, where he was a volunteer as an astronomer. He says, we were operating on a shoestring budget We didn't have the money to pay folk, which is why those who are involved were volunteers. To Airman, reviewing large printouts of data every few days was routine part of a volunteer. And on the 17th of August in 77, he looked through the latest stack of papers and he spotted a set of numbers and letters. 6EQUJ5. To the untrained eye, it looked like nonsense, but to Airman, the data meant that Big Ear had picked up a very strong signal that started out low, increased in strength, and then dropped off again. This meant the signal was likely picked up as one one particular region of space passed over the detector. He says, it was a narrowband signal, just what we were looking for with SETI. It didn't take long for me to recognise that this was extremely interesting, and the word wow came to my mind very quickly, so I wrote it down. But as he poured through the data from the following days, he was surprised to find the signal didn't reappear. His intrigue only deepened after meeting with his observatory director and staff. Together they searched the sky for any possible object in the region of that sky that could explain the signal. They checked everything from comets, planets, satellites and more. Nothing matched up. The team kept Big Air observing the same celestial spot for a month, yet they found nothing. And a year later, when they tried again, they still came up empty. The SETI project at Big Ear lasted for 24 years, making it the longest-running continuous SETI search in history. But during that time, the investigators never picked up anything else quite like the wow signal. For Airman, 
He also maintains that he may never know exactly what he discovered that day. He says, no conclusion was ever possible other than it certainly had the potential of being a signal from extraterrestrial intelligence. This bit's really sad. In the end, the big ear's death came just a few years after Congress deemed the search for extraterrestrial intelligence unworthy of taxpayer funds. And that happened in 1993. The observatory lost its... Such a small amount, really, in grand terms. The observatory lost its $100,000 in annual funding from NASA, plus another 50000 slated for an instrument that could have given Big Ear a new lease of life. By 1998, Ohio State University had demolished the telescope. Mm. That's that so is sad. a really sad end to it, isn't it? For such a small amount of money and... You've got to imagine there's there's a huge amount of politics behind that as well, isn't there? Like, it feels like the, the SETI projects, it's almost like they their job is to not find extraterrestrial life. Because if <laughs> <Yeah>. they do, <clears throat> it, it feels like they would be shut down because people would panic. It's much safer for everybody, particularly for people in government, to go, well, you know, we've got this SETI project, but they haven't found anything. It's much safer. Yeah. Well, even this quote from the SETI senior astronomer says, I get emails at least once a month from people who look at that printout of the wow signal and interpretate those data in all sorts of ways. People often see it as an alien code that's being sent as a direct message to humans. They don't realise the combination of numbers and letters on the printout was just a convention set by astronomers working at the observatory. The printouts couldn't handle numbers larger than nine, so the display cycles through letters starting with B for each increasing order of intensity. People think they've figured out what the message is or how big the aliens are, he adds, and it's like a dozen numbers, and all that printout does is give you the level of intensity. But, you know, that that may be the case, and that does explain maybe a lot of people on the internet saying, well, I've worked out what the message is. The point is, it was this message that nobody can fathom, and it was the intensity of it that meant it was nothing like nothing else, and nobody's been able to find out what it was. Right. So what we know is actually the intensity, but we have no idea of... Uh, any data that might be within that message because it wasn't recorded. So what we've got is those uh, those numbers and letters, they're a measure of intensity, not a measure of any data that was included in the signal. And we don't have the data there. We just have a measure of the intensity. It's a bit like on a, yeah. your mobile phone, rather than hearing the conversation, you're just seeing the the bar level of um how much data uh, how much signal you've got that's that's basically what's been recorded yeah right okay yeah that's exactly but it's still it's still something they can't fathom and still can't work out what it was yeah well interestingly uh the wow signal or a wow signal came back last year or something similar at least a new possible signal has been found dubbed by some as the WOW Signal 2020, and it appears to come from Proxima Centauri, the closest star to our sun. 
News comes from a leak to the Guardian newspaper, which ran the story on December the 17th, 2020. What makes this detection unique and rather baffling is the signal, narrowband and needle sharp at 982.002 megahertz, came from the direction of Proxima, which is so close to us it's only about four light years away. Astronomers with Breakthrough Listen uh, first detected the signal on April the 29th, 2019, using the Parkes radio telescope at Parkes Observatory in Australia, uh, but the, they didn't find it in the data until October of 2020. Two papers detailing the discovery of the an- and analysis are reportedly due to come out earlier, uh, early in 2021, so any time now. The astronomers were not named in the Guardian article, so it seemed that it was leaked to the newspaper. Uh, and there has been some playing down of it, saying it could be just a mundane explanation, but it, there's something about the fact it comes in the narrow beam and the 980 megahertz that has got people excited, basically. Okay. Um, so, yeah, they've detected a mysterious radio signal similar to the original wow signal, or at least in its impact, from our nearest, uh, the nearest star to our sun. It's called Wow 2020. Presumably, people have already taken into account this could be a pulsar, this could be a satellite, all of those things, because we're a bit more yeah. forward-thinking, or not forward-thinking, but we're a bit more advanced than we were in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. However, I think the caveat has to be, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there we don't understand that just could be natural phenomena, you know. We're not even yeah. sure how gravity works, so, you know... <laughs> The, the fact it could be. And in fact, that leads me on nicely to my next story. I mean, I think the wow, both wow signals are amazing. And I do think, you know, from all the stuff that I've seen, they are the closest contenders, let's say, for mm-hmm. some kind of existence of alien uh, civilizations. But I mentioned Parks Observatory in Australia. And I've got another story from there, which I just love. So the, they received a mysterious signal that baffled Australian scientists for 17 years until it was finally solved in 2015. The, signals, the signal of peritons was first detected in 1998 and it would only appear a few times a year. Astronomers narrowed the signal down to within five kilometres of the park's observatory, so it's not extraterrestrial. They assumed it was connected to possible atmospheric interference from lightning. Then, on the 1st of January 2015, they installed a new piece of equipment which monitored interference and discovered a strong signal at 2.4 gigahertz. Ben, can you guess where the interference was coming from? 2.4 2.4 gigahertz as a microwave? <laughs> Spot on. Oh, the mystery, really? <laughs> the mystery signal was coming from the facility's microwave oven. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. 
That's they had, test, they had tested the oven previously and ruled it out for interference until they realised that when the door was opened before the oven had finished heating, it created the peritons that caused the interference. So it wasn't a cosmic microwave, just a kitchen one. Wow. That, <laughs> that is amazing. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So, so it, that, that was confusing them for, what do you say, 18 years? 17 years. 17 yeah. years. So that's the thing, isn't it? Like, it, that goes back to the wow signal in that if it took us 17 years to work out that a microwave oven was disrupting <laughs> something, then we don't really have any right to rule out or indeed rule in anything. Yeah, I agree. I think that's kind of why we were kind of going there, weren't we, with the kind of the way technology is developed. If, you know, a mistake, yeah. in their fairness, I have seen this story reported before and it's been reported that they thought it was some extraterrestrial message. They never thought that. They knew it was something terrestrial-based and within close proximity. Um, but they'd ruled out the microwave because they hadn't tested it by opening it before it had finished heating, basically. Wow. That's amazing. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to close with some strange, potentially extraterrestrial audio heard by astronauts on the Apollo 10 mission, Uh, which is quite pertinent, uh, especially this week with uh, the death of Michael Collins, who was... The, I guess the guy who didn't get to go to the moon on Apollo 11, but uh, was one of the key members of yeah. the team. So uh, I guess this uh, story is a bit kind of in honour of him in a way. So I guess Apollo 10 was, I guess you describe it as a dry run for the actual moon landing on Apollo 11, right? It's probably the best way of describing mm, it. Yeah. Uh, the mission was crewed by astronauts uh, Eugene Cernan, Thomas Stafford and John Young. And while they were at the backside of the moon, out of radio contact with mission control, they were testing separating the lunar module from the main craft. So they're on radio headsets. The crew then start to hear an eerie, unexplained sound through their radio headsets. Uh, I'm going to play a little bit of audio in a minute, but... uh, First of all, uh, I want to just talk through a little bit of the transcript. So Eugene Cernan was the first to acknowledge it, saying to his crewmates, I quote, you hear that, that whistling sound? Boy, that sure is weird music. Later in the transcript, Cernan says, you know, that was funny. That's just like something from outer space, really. Who is going to believe it? His crewmate Young answers, nobody. Shall we tell them about it? Cernan replies, I don't know. We ought to think about it some. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to play all the audio because it's about eight minutes, but I'll just play a little bit, have a listen to this. You'll get an idea of what the sound sounds like and you'll hear a bit of the chatter. And it music even sounds outer spacey, doesn't it? You hear that? That whistling sound? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, outer space-type music. 
Okay, Tom, is your is your insulation all burned off here on the front side of your window over here? Right? Yeah. Mine's all burned off. Boy, that sure is weird music. It's a whistling, you know, like an outer space type thing. Yeah, it, it's, it is weird, that, isn't it? That, that, just their reaction, I think, is weird, and the sound is weird, right, Ben? Yeah, it is. Um, again, it's uh, very ethereal, it's very uh, ambient, um, but also it's quite, it's, it's alluring, it's, it's beautiful in a way. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it is still unclear as to what could have caused that sound. There have been theories that it was charged particles interfering with the radio signals. Um, and when the recordings came to light, this was years later. So in a statement, he said, I don't remember that incident exciting me enough to take it seriously. Had we thought it was something other than that, we would have briefed everyone after the flight. We never gave it another thought. Now, I'm not sure they would have made a fuss about it, and I can think of few reasons why that would be the case. Um, And see what you think, Ben. I mean, they say in the transcript, should we report it or not, right? Right. And it's the kind of thing that if an astronaut did report, it could end their career, right? Because there's lots of concerns about you know, your mental stability and could you handle yourself under pressure and, you know what I mean? If you kind of report it as something, I guess, other than explainable, then that could jeopardise your career. And also it could have jeopardised the Apollo 11 mission. Mm. Imagine being the guy who says, oh, I heard a weird sound, it could be aliens. Do you think we should send Apollo 11, right? Mm. Mm. But also I think, the thing about it is they're listening to this when they're out of contact with mission control, right? Cause they're on the dark side of the moon. So, yeah. so the timing is very interesting. Yes. I mean, there's been a lot of point being made, you know, they were separating, you know, they were in different bits of the spacecraft. So that's why they were using the radio and it could have been something to do with that. You know, I I guess you do, you know, anyone who's got a stereo knows you do get weird sounds every now and again. But you think the amount of detail that NASA go into in investigating that stuff feels like something they would have been able to repeat and it doesn't seem like they have. Yeah. But also I would say that, um, like, it, when you when you're a kid and you've got your first radio or even building a crystal radio if you're trying to tune between stations on either medium or long wave or even in short wave you do sometimes get that whistling and yeah that is not there's nothing paranormal about that that is just the way that the radio reception equipment is interpreting the signals that it's getting there so it's it seems completely possible that uh, right now we're not, e- well, even now, I should say, but particularly then, we're not sure of what sort of um, the background radio signals from space are if you are shielded from what's yeah. coming out of Earth. Yeah. So 
like yeah, I I think it's unlikely that there's an ambient music station being run by <laughs> aliens on the dark side of the moon. But the the only bit of that audio that I didn't find was someone going, "John, is that you with the microwave again? <laughs> <laughs> You're heating up your coffee." I mean, the the other thing that makes me a little bit skeptical about that story, um, it's easy to get conspiracy about NASA, um. But I think we've talked about this before. You know, programs that can find anything that's a little bit strange of some astronaut saying something weird, you know, that's an hour special right there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there, yeah. There's, there, there's so much that gets hyped up into something. So if you take, you know, the guy at face value saying, well, at the time we didn't think it was anything that big there's part of me that goes yep he's probably right and it's just a noise you know Mm. but i i think maybe what's interesting about it is it it tells you something about strange stuff that may have gone on before that they didn't want they were debating whether they should report it or not i mean Mm. generally in space missions which i think may be more interesting Mm. yeah agreed so, yeah, that is our audio journey around interstellar space. And I, I think for me, I love the wow signal story because I just imagine this guy, I mean, to write that on a bit of paper, you must have gone, oh, my God, that is amazing. Yes. Um, I think I like the gold discs being out there rather than the Arecibo message necessarily because... I do like the like you. I'm kind of the idea of something physical out there is really interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, well, it's yeah. it's that thought of because the a digital signal, nobody gets their physical hands on it, but to interpret those gold discs, somebody or something has to put its appendages on it and make a machine to interpret it, and like the joy of imagining what that might look like at the other end and when that might be is is quite a thing although i do still worry about the kind of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy moment when they turn up and say your planet's been chosen for demolition yep that is true (laughs) but if that was if Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy became a thing, then we could all go to the restaurant at the end of the universe. And that would be, if I could do anything, I, that's where I would go. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, I was thinking, Ben, because the other bit I loved from doing this is that the guy who did the music from the Arecibo message. Mm. What, what do you say? Should we play out with that rather than our title music oh yeah i think that would be only right and proper and so then if our podcast ends up being listened to by some alien civilization there'll be a message in there i'm not quite sure which bit i've kind of put in there but you know it's probably the chemical compound for something well but it doesn't matter 
we haven't started a Patreon yet, but um, yeah. by the time they get this, we will have done. So, yeah. yeah, although by the time we get the money from an extraterrestrial civilization, <laughs> we'll be well gone. <laughs> oh, God. Well, you can leave it to our ancestors. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, that would be that would be perfect. I like that. Yeah. So we're going to play you out with the Arecibo message and uh, we'll see you next time on the Quantum Mechanics. And don't forget, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review, become a member of one of our social channels. Indeed. See you next time. See you next time. the quantum mechanics